You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the ancient empire of Ghana, a drum sounds in the distance. Traders go to the appointed spot. The people they are trading with have already gone, leaving their goods behind them. This is the silent trade. The commodity that waits for them unprotected is gold. What do they have to offer that would be important enough for their trading partners to trust this system so much? It's salt. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To a chemist, salt is what you get when positive and negative ions enter each other's orbit. To everyone else, salt is sodium chloride, the white crystals left over from seawater evaporation. It's been essential for food preservation since mankind began harvesting it in the Neolithic period. Egyptians traded cedar, glass, and dye to Phoenicians, who paid them primarily with salt and salted fish. The Celts in Britain were huge users of salt, growing rich by trading for luxury items like wine with Greeks and Romans. Blocks of salt bound with straw, called omolechu, were used as currency in Ethiopia until the early 20th century, and had been since at least the 6th century. In China, bandits and rebels thrived on salt smuggling to avoid taxes. Salt taxes and governmental monopolies have led to protests and wars around the globe, including being a contributing factor in the French Revolution. In colonial India, only the British government could produce and profit from salt production conducted by the Indians living on the coast. This was why Gandhi and his followers marched for 23 days to protest in March of 1930. When he arrived on the coast, Gandhi deliberately violated the law by boiling a chunk of salty ocean mud. This march became known as the Salt March to Dandi. People across India began making their own salt in protest, which was an important milestone in the struggle for Indian independence. Salt production also played a significant role in early America. The Massachusetts Bay Colony held the first patent to produce salt in the colonies and continued to produce it for the next 200 years. The Erie Canal was opened primarily to make salt transportation easier, and during the Civil War, the Union captured significant Confederate salt works and created a temporary salt shortage in the Confederate states. Salt continues to be important to the economies of many states like Ohio, Louisiana, and Texas. The human body cannot function without sodium. That's why it's been such a critical commodity throughout history. Sodium is necessary for nerves to transmit impulses to muscles, including the heart, to contract and relax, and for your body to maintain the correct fluid balance. When sodium is in short supply, chemical and hormonal messages signal the kidneys and sweat glands to hold on to water and conserve sodium. 
Salt is so essential to the body that if you drink too much water, it can flush it out of your system and cause fatal hyponatremia. Such was the case of the otherwise healthy 28-year-old woman who died in 2007 when participating in a radio station contest, Hold Your Wee for a Wee, in which contestants were required to drink as much water as possible without going to the bathroom in order to win a Nintendo video game console. When you get more sodium than you need, the kidneys flush out the excess by making more saltier urine. If you take in more sodium than your kidneys can get rid of, it accumulates in the fluid between cells. Water follows sodium like hippies follow the Grateful Dead, and as the volume of fluid increases, so does the volume of your blood. This means more work for the heart and more pressure on blood vessels. Over time, this can stiffen blood vessels, leading to high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, or heart failure. There's also some evidence that salt can directly affect the heart, the aorta, and the kidneys without necessarily increasing the blood pressure first. Hundreds of studies have looked at connections between salt intake and mortality. The trouble with these studies is that virtually everyone has flaws, which is what you get in human studies of this nature. They're usually too short, too small, not conducive to real-world conditions, or influenced by factors other than sodium. To really determine the effects of too much salt in the diet, you would need to get people who are as similar as possible in terms of health and lifestyle, ensure they eat diets as identical as possible, and follow them closely for years. Just ain't gonna happen, Captain. But that doesn't mean you can disregard your doctor if she tells you to cut back on your sodium. Start by reading the labels on processed and prepared foods. The sodium typically ranges from troubling to alarming. In 2011, Campbell's soups were sued because their 25% less sodium tomato soup had the exact same amount of sodium as the regular variety, though at least it cost more. Their defense was that that statement was made in comparison to all their soups in general, not just the regular tomato soup specifically. But they still settled the lawsuit. So if humans need salt and water, why can't we drink salt water? The ideal salinity of blood is 9 grams of salt per 1,000 grams of water. In medicine, fluids that have the same salinity as blood are referred to as isotonic. When we consume too much salt, we excrete the excess in our urine to keep our bodily fluids isotonic. Salt water is a hypertonic solution with a salinity of 35. Drinking hypertonic fluids such as seawater throws the body's coping mechanisms into disarray. Although our bodies are designed to normalize sodium and chloride concentrations, dealing with extremely high concentrations of salt in the blood can be challenging. Cell membranes are semi-permeable, allowing water to pass through easily. When the salt concentration outside a cell is higher than inside, water moves from the inside to the outside to correct the imbalance. You may remember that from science class in school as osmosis. If you drink seawater, the natural process of osmosis turns disastrous. With the salinity of seawater being almost four times that of blood, so much water leaves the cells to try to correct the imbalance that your cells actually shrink. In order to regain an isotonic state, the body attempts to eliminate the excess sodium through the urine. 
However, at their best, human kidneys can only produce urine that's slightly less salty than salt water. So in order to remove the excess sodium, we urinate more water than we actually drank, and dehydration sets in. So if you drink seawater, you're actually incurring a net loss of fluids. The body tries to compensate for the fluid loss by increasing the heart rate and constricting blood vessels to maintain blood pressure and blood flow to vital organs. You're also likely to feel nauseous, weak, and even become delirious. As you become more dehydrated, the coping mechanism fails. If you still don't have any fresh water to drink to reverse the effects of excess sodium, the brain and organs receive less blood, leading to coma, organ failure, and eventually death. That being said, salt water can actually come to your rescue in a survival situation. You can mix it with your fresh water supply in a ratio of three parts fresh to one part seawater in order to make a kind of sports drink and stretch your fresh water supply. To review, salt water bad, mostly. Speaking of reviews, segues, I've still got them. We got another review through the Apple Podcast app, which always makes my day. There's great debate in the podcasting community about whether or not positive reviews help show rankings, but I don't care. I just love hearing from people who are enjoying the show. We did get a one-star rating one time, but the person didn't leave a written review, so I'll just have to spend the rest of my life wondering what their principal complaint was. Anyway, on to the review from T. Mick, who says, I'm a simple person with simple needs, and direct input of factual information into my brain by a soothing voice with a touch of humor is really all I need. I love this podcast! Exclamation point. Thanks, T. Mick. As always, credit for my radio voice goes to my mother, who was in radio in the 60s and 70s, and whose podcast, Rock History with Joe Christie, will debut before the fall. I do get notified when there's a new review through Apple Podcasts, but not when people leave reviews through other listening apps. So if you do leave a review through your app of choice, give me a shout so I don't miss it. So humans can't drink seawater, but that's okay because we don't live in the ocean. But what about the animals that do? Most of them are what's called osmotic regulators, able to control the process of osmosis in various ways. For example, salmon use specialized cells on their gills, called chloride cells, to excrete excess salt, allowing the fish to take in water without becoming dehydrated. Sea turtles secrete excess salt from salt glands behind their eyes. They take in salt not primarily from drinking water, but from eating jellyfish, who are mostly made of seawater themselves. Seabirds do drink salt water. The salt moves through their bloodstream to a pair of salt glands above their eyes. The densely salted fluid that results is excreted from the nostrils and runs down grooves in the bill to drip off. Okay, but how do marine mammals not shrivel up and die from the salinity? Scientists aren't 100% sure, but the leading theories are that animals like dolphins and whales get the water they need as metabolic water in their food. Some species of seals and sea lion drink seawater occasionally, but also have access to snow to eat. Even sea ice is only one-tenth as salty as seawater. While it's dangerously ubiquitous today, prior to industrialization, salt was extremely labor-intensive to harvest, which is what made it such a valuable commodity. 
In the Iron Age, the British Celts evaporated salt by boiling seawater or salt spring brine in clay pots over open fires. In Jing Dynasty China, people in the Sichuan province actually excavated natural gas and used it to boil a rock salt solution. In Rome, seawater was boiled in large, lead-lined pans, which may have led to systemic lead poisoning exacerbating the fall of Rome. Speaking of ancient Rome, you've probably heard that her soldiers were paid in salt, called salarium, which is where the word salary comes from. While widespread, that fact isn't true. Neither is the version that soldiers were given salarium argentum, money specifically to buy their own salt. First, the accurate parts. The English word salary does indeed come from the Latin salarium, meaning stipend or money allowance. Salarium does seem to be linked to sal, for salt, via the adjective salarius pertaining to salt. There's evidence of the facts getting muddled in dictionaries going back hundreds of years. The phrase salt money, salarium argentum, is an invention of 18th century Latin dictionaries. The phrase was coined by dictionary writers as their best guess on how salarium, salary, came from salarius, pertaining to salt. Actual archaeological or anthropological evidence of soldiers being paid in salt or having part of their wages designated for salt is just thin on the ground. It also wouldn't have been practical to pay soldiers in salt. While salt was valuable, it wasn't like spices that could literally be worth their weight in gold. A foot soldier's wages were worth 20 Roman pounds of salt a day. It wouldn't work for either the soldier or the army to be paying out 600 pounds of salt to each soldier each month. What would they do with it? Where would they put it? How would they even carry it away? The theory just doesn't add up. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. It's been another great week for interaction with your fellow Brainiacs. Over in the Brainiac break room at 
facebook.com slash groups, plural, slash Brainiac Breakroom. Presciently thematic for this week, Adam from the Odd Dad Out podcast posted, Sodium citrate is the secret ingredient to make any cheese into a smooth, creamy nacho cheese sauce. Coincidentally, its chemical formula is Na3C6H5O7. N-A-C-H-O. The Brainiac Break Room is open to anyone looking for a place to share interesting tidbits they find, to get facts that don't make it onto the main social media feeds, as well as to talk about topics from each week's episode. And big thanks to all the folks in the Twitterverse who've been retweeting posts this past week, including Eric Parfait, Jeff Vickers, Emily Prokop, Richard Enriquez, Eric Rowe, and Charles with a Hammer. And last week, I finally got to be a guest on The Great Historical Hotties Show, which rates important people that you may not have heard of on criteria like mental attractiveness and je ne sais quoi. So be sure you check that one out. The topic was senators, and I gave lots of love to one of my favorites, Tammy Duckworth, who is thoroughly badass. Humans taste saltiness thanks to epithelial sodium channels, which are basically pores that allow sodium ions to pass into the taste receptor cells in the taste buds. The receptor then tells the brain that something is salty. Salt also makes things sweeter. Besides our mouths, our intestines are full of sugar sensors. In fact, many human organs have sugar sensors, and their job usually is to process glucose and insulin in the blood. However, intestinal glucose sensor has another job in our mouth. It pushes glucose into the sweet taste cells when it senses the presence of sodium in the food, thus triggering the cell to register more sweetness. Salt also suppresses bitterness, even better than adding sugar to food does. The sodium interferes with the binding between the bitter compounds and the taste receptor cells. Try adding it to your drip coffee. According to Alton Brown, the correct ratio is a quarter teaspoon of salt to six tablespoons coffee grounds. Salt even makes our food smell better. The ions in the salt are attracted to the available water in the food. Adding salt to food makes it easier for volatile compounds, the molecules that evaporate quickly and contribute to aroma, to escape into the air where your sense of smell gives your brain the bulk of the information about the flavor of your food. Sea salt is generally more expensive than regular table salt because of how it's harvested. Fleur de sel, French for flower of salt, is scraped by hand from the surface of evaporation ponds. Sea salts are not as heavily processed as table salt, so they retain trace minerals that would normally be removed during the refining process, and that's why they come out pink, white, gray, black, or a combination of colors depending on where they come from and what minerals they contain. Some pink salts, like Himalayan salt, get their color from calcium, magnesium, potassium, copper, and iron. Others contain carotene from salt-tolerant algae and are more peachy-colored. Reddish-pink salts, like Hawaiian alia salt, have iron oxide in the form of volcanic clay. Black salt is often just a really dark, pinkish-gray salt. Some foodies argue that the higher amounts of trace minerals give sea salts a unique flavor. Others say the taste is the same, but the different colors and textures add to presentation. My two cents 
If you've never had smoked salt, treat yourself. It's fabulous. When salt isn't evaporated from the ocean, it's brought up from beneath the earth. Deep shaft mining is much like mining for any other mineral. Typically, the salt exists as deposits of ancient underground seabeds, which were buried by tectonic plate shift thousands of years ago. Many salt mines use the room and pillar system, where shafts are sunk down to the floor of the mine, and rooms are carefully excavated by drilling, cutting, and blasting between support columns. After the salt is removed and crushed, a conveyor belt hauls it to the surface. Most of the salt produced this way is used as rock salt. Table salt typically comes from solution mining. Wells are erected over salt beds and water is injected to dissolve the salt. Then the salt solution, or brine, is pumped out and taken to a plant for evaporation. Depending on the type of salt it will be, iodine or an anti-clumping agent may be added. When solution mines are located near chemical plants, they're called brine wells, and the salt is used for chemical production. After the salt is removed from the salt mine, the empty rooms are sometimes used to store other substances, like natural gas or even industrial waste. Salt mines are found in far-flung exotic places like Pakistan, Chile, Detroit. A 114-year-old mine lies more than 1,200 feet below the Motor City's roads with a hundred miles of tunnels. Getting to the salt in 1910 proved costly, both financially and mortally. Six men were killed during the dig, and the Detroit Salt and Manufacturing Company was bankrupted in the process. Everything had to be lowered a thousand feet or 320 meters into the mine, and once lowered in, it wasn't coming back out. And that includes the mules. A second tunnel was dug in 1922 so that salt could be brought up faster and larger equipment lowered, sent down piece by piece, and reassembled in a machine shop in the mine. Miners ride down in a tiny elevator, going down deeper than the Empire State Building is tall. And it's not all bad. The mine itself is a relatively clean and spacious place to work, as mines go. There are no vermin, because there's nothing for them to eat, and workers are even allowed to smoke in some areas. On the morning of November 21, 1980, a 12-man Texaco oil rig crew on Louisiana's Lake Peñor noticed that their drill had seized up below the surface of the shallow lake and they couldn't get it free. There were some loud popping noises. Their platform began to tilt toward the water and the men scrambled for shore. Ninety minutes later, they watched as $15 million worth of derrick vanished into a lake that only had an average depth of about three feet or one meter. The derrick had been 150 feet or 46 meters tall. They had accidentally drilled into the main shaft of a diamond crystal salt mine whose tunnels crisscrossed the rock under the lake. Lake water was now rushing into the mine through the rapidly expanding hole in the salt dome with a force ten times that of a fire hydrant. Down in the mine, fifty workers suddenly found themselves in a disaster movie, using mine carts and an agonizingly slow elevator to escape. Thankfully, all fifty got out alive, but the drama was just beginning for Lake Peñor. The oil men watched in shock as the lake became the largest man-made whirlpool in history. A swirling vortex of mud, trees, and 
barges. A tugboat, a dock, another drilling platform, a parking lot, and a big chunk of nearby Jefferson Island were sucked into the abyss. Lake Penure used to drain into Vermilion Bay via the Del Camber Canal, but once the lake was emptied into the mine, the canal changed directions, and salt water from the Gulf of Mexico flooded into the muddy lake bed. To this day, Lake Penur has a brackish ecosystem very different from what it had in 1980. The backwards flow created a temporary 164-foot or 50-meter waterfall, the tallest in the state, and 400-foot, 122-meter geysers burst forth periodically from the depths as compressed air was forced out of the flooded mine shafts. The drilling company eventually agreed to pay the equivalent of $150 million to the owners of the mine and other flooded local businesses, because they had been drilling in the wrong place. An engineer mistook one system of coordinates for a similar, but obviously distinctly critically different, system of coordinates. Remind me of this if I ever do an episode on expensive failures. Veering away from colossal catastrophes for a moment, I have an exciting new project to tell you about. As if your brain on facts and science with Savannah age 7 weren't enough to keep me busy. And there will be more science with Savannah's if I can squeeze into her busy seven-year-old schedule. I've teamed up with three of my favorite podcast hosts to create the pilot for a new show. Join Eric from Fan Theory World, Ryan from Conspiracy Theoryology, and Sean, the Velvet Drizzle himself from Stories of Your and Yours, and myself as we take turns telling each other fascinating facts except one of us is lying. And the person who's it only gets to ask each person one question in order to spot the lie. The pilot episode will be available as a Patreon exclusive on July 10th, well before it goes out to the wider world. Go to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts today to sign up for a membership as low as $2 a month to hear the first episode of Spot the Lie before anyone else. Take a look at the other tiers while you're there. In addition to early access to the regular episodes, you can get two bonus mini-episodes each month for as little as 33 cents a day, less than the cheapest toll you go through, as well as voting on show topics and more. And I'd like to thank and welcome our newest patron, Eric Rowe, who joins us all the way from New Zealand, which is some amazing and humbling reach for my little program. Rock salt is one of the most effective substances for de-icing roadways when winter weather strikes. But while it makes roads safer, tons of salt ends up in rivers, lakes, and marshes, where it poses a real danger to the aquatic life and the potability of the water. It's not doing bridges, overpasses, and exposed metal of road infrastructure any favors either. Currently, the U.S. dumps about 15 million tons per year. In some cases, the salt, silt, and other substances have been building up layer by layer since the 1930s. That's why some areas are testing alternate substances to keep drivers safe. Some cities in Canada are now using a beet juice and salt mixture on the roads to stop them freezing over. The beet juice prevents roads from icing in temperatures up to negative 25 degrees Celsius, which is negative 13 Fahrenheit, 
making it more effective than just salt on its own. The beet juice mixture is also less toxic for the environment, though local residents have complained they don't like the way it smells. One U.S. city has chosen to use cheese brine to de-ice roads since 2009, and it works more effectively than the rock salt. Three guesses where they're using cheese brine and the last two don't count. That's right, Wisconsin. Bergen County, New Jersey has been using pickle brine since the winter of 2014. It may not smell great to, you know, people with no taste, but it's cheaper and deposits less chloride into the environment than rock salt. And there's plenty of it discarded from factories. New Jersey was pushed to try pickle brine after its 40,000 ton shipment of rock salt was held up at the Port of Maine because the vessel wasn't flying a U.S. flag, a violation of the 1920 Federal Maritime Act, which mandates that ships carrying goods between two U.S. ports fly the American flag. This bureaucratic tangle forced New Jersey to get creative with spare brine that was normally a waste product, which means it was also cost-effective. It seems many regions have alternative chemicals on hand that can inventively cut costs, eliminate waste, and protect the environment. Alaska, Russia, Hungary, and the state of Tennessee have all used waste from distilleries to de-ice roads in recent years. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. We didn't even get into Salt's significance in religion and folklore, like the Old Testament story of Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt, the Finnish legend of a magic salt mill that spared slaves the burden of having to turn it all day, or the Salt Witch of the Nebraska Plains. I could probably do an entire episode on creation stories of how the ocean became salty, like the Russian tale of a poor man who gets a magic millstone that can provide he and his wife with anything they need. His greedy brother tricks him out of it and tells the millstone to make salt for him to sell, but he doesn't know the right words to make the millstone stop. His boat sank under the weight of the salt, and the millstone just kept right on turning. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And remember, the pilot episode of Spot the Lie hits patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts on July 10th. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.